2: Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here. We've been doing the show for many years, and uh, it's, it's another Thanksgiving. Um, there's, there's an old friend of mine who's a noted culinary writer and historian, and uh, he's actually calling in with us from Cambodia, where, where he's been living the last few years. So this is the first time I'm recording at 5 o'clock on Tuesday, November 15th, and he's uh, way ahead, I think, at about, I don't know, 5 o'clock at, in the morning the next day, and um, but, but his name is John Martin Taylor. You might have heard of him as Hop and Johns. Uh, in my mind, he's a legend and a, a, a cookbook author and writer who I respect. And I, I do read his, his new book that's out. So we're going to talk about his new book and Thanksgiving and all that. But uh, he's a great talker. So, um, John, why don't you come on? Just give us a quick intro about who you are and just tell us what the new book is, because um, it,
3: it's really pretty neat. It's your memoirs. Hey, Jimmy. It's great to talk to you again. Um, and and welcome from the future, because it is uh, the next day here already in Cambodia. Yeah, the, the, the new book, you know, this is the first time I've had a book in 25 years, believe it or not. But I've been writing a lot. And the new book, um, University of South Carolina Press uh, is publishing. Um, and it's an anthology of my work, and it's called... Charleston to Phnom Penh, a cook's journal. And a a couple of years ago, before we moved to Cambodia, I gave all my papers to the um, College of Charleston, which is part of the university system in South Carolina. They had solicited them. And I was trying to gather them all together. And the press was interested in me writing a new forward to uh, the, a new edition of the Karin Hess book, the great culinary historian's book on the Carolina Rice Kitchen. And she asked me what I was up to. And I told her, well, I'm trying to get all these essays, you know, printed out, put together, assembled so that I can add them to my archives at the College of Charleston, because, you know, they have been like this is 40 years of work, and there have been all these different computers and sketchbooks and blah, 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 and it's just so much stuff. Anyway, I had about 350 essays, <laughs> and she laughed. Um, my, my young editor at, at the press, Aurora Bell, a marvelous editor. Um, I, I, as I say in the book, the book is as much hers as mine. Um, and she laughed, and she said, well, maybe you could send me like a third of those. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so i sent her 118 essays and it, and you know this isn't a cookbook uh, it's as much memoir as anything it's it's all over the place as you've as you've seen there there are uh, culinary historical articles there are travel pieces there's an editorial and then there's a lot of very personal essays there's an essay about dancing there's an essay about fishing there's an essay about insomnia and death and um, but it's, uh, the book is really full of joy. And anyway, we edited down from that 118 to 42 essays. And so they go from right after I opened the culinary bookstore in Charleston in, um, in the late eighties to the present. Um, it, I, I think people will find it a fun read. There's some really funny stuff in it. There's some really serious, um, Etymology in there, tracing the origin of words and recipes. Um, you know,
1: John, I'm, i I would say one, one reason I wanted to re- record this week because this is pretty much our Thanksgiving week episode is that the way you write and think about food uh, resonates. And I was, I think, the Thanksgiving for a lot of people is probably the holiday that's about food. So I highly recommend you pre- pre-order the book from Charleston uh, from Charleston to Phnom Penn. Uh, By John Martin Taylor. But John, let's go way back with you, because, um, you know, you're a legend, but for a lot of younger people, they may not know who you are. So let's get you to Charleston, South Carolina. When you moved there back in the 80s, um, was it the thriving culinary mecca it is now with the Charleston wine and food and with the breweries
3: that I know, like Westbrook and and Edmunds Oast? There There was none of that there was absolutely none of that when i moved to charleston to open my bookstore in 86 there were a handful of restaurants and i was really at the forefront of of charleston's culinary renaissance not as a chef mind you but as a culinary historian i am not a chef i am a home cook i'm a homemaker um it's what i do and a writer um and What happened was when I got there, I was already researching the culinary history there. And what I found was basically a dead cuisine. You know, there wasn't even a single restaurant in Charleston serving shrimp and grits, for example. And shrimp and grits is actually uh, the name of the dish was given by uh, Bill Neal, who was another uh, Southern culinary pioneer at his restaurant, Crook's Corner in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. In Charleston, we, we called it uh, just breakfast shrimp. You use a little creek shrimp. Um, and it, it was hard to find um, stone ground, whole grain, uh, heirloom, grains of any kind. Oh, you might go in a health food store and find a bag of you know, from some m- mill somewhere with no milling date on it, unrefrigerated, um, and of course, when they're whole grain, the oil is in the germ and it'll go bad. And then the rest of the uh, of the grits and cornmeal that you found in the grocery stores, for the most part, were from the big producers like. Quaker and Jim Dandy, which had been totally de germinated. Of course, the germ is where the oil is and oil is what carries flavor. and, and it's no wonder Yankees didn't like them because they just tasted like the cardboard packaging they <laughs> were in. So like a mush. <laughs> yeah, so when you you know when you have an independent bookstore, um, you usually have to have some kind of, of product um, besides the books to help you pay the bills, um, um, some stores have, you know, sell a lot of t-shirts and things like that. Some stores have teddy bears, whatever, but I really, uh, wanted to, to make just stone ground, whole grain grits and cornmeal available again. Now, when I was growing up, I grew up about, um, uh, 70 miles inland from Charleston, um, when I was growing up, yes, we bought uh, cornmeal and grits from the local AMP, but it was whole grain and it was grown at a mill about 40 miles away. And uh, mama would buy these little one pound bags, and that's what we would eat that week. And then she'd buy another, another bag the next week. And so we always had fresh stuff. We call it country grits. Um, Anyway, uh, there was none of that to be had, none of the whole grain stuff to be had. And so I either went to or tried the products from 30 Mills before I found uh, a young couple um, in the mountains north of Atlanta, uh, growing the right kind of corn, growing it the right way, harvesting it the right way, um, adding nothing to it, taking nothing from it, grinding it between blue granite stones. Because steel rollers actually heat up and they also grind the products too too finely. So that was my first thing was to find this product to sell. Of course, then I had to educate the public on it because people were a generation or two away from eating whole grain. Um, so th- that to me is like my greatest accomplishment um, is is getting whole grain, corn, and and other grains back on the tables of Charleston. And then I started writing about the traditional dishes that I was finding that had disappeared and trying to get them back on the table. Um, I opened the shop in 1986, and in the fall of 1989, there was a devastating hurricane, Hurricane Hugo, and all of us were... Out of our homes for and businesses for the better part of a year, but what happened in Charleston was that, whereas there had always been this evolving patina of, of of painting houses and and restoring them, what happened after the hurricane is the whole town got gussied up at the same time, and a lot of money from outside the city came in, and. This coincided with this fresh and local and traditional movement of which I was a part, but I don't mean to take too much credit because there were also all of these young chefs who were, who were you know trying to make a name for themselves, uh, and so uh, I know Donald Erickman was making um, spring rolls with collards um, instead of cabbage, and uh, there were you know a lot of these young chefs. And Johnson and Wales, the culinary um, school, had opened a campus in Charleston. So uh, Charleston, ever since Hurricane Hugo, has been on this trajectory that has not stopped. I mean, it's been 18 years since I lived in Charleston, and I barely recognize it. Both my sisters are there, but I barely recognize it when I go home. There there are restaurants in what used to be basically uh, slums, um, and uh, most of the poor people have been moved off of the peninsula. You know, Charleston's a peninsula that comes between the Ashley and Cooper River that flow into the ocean. Um, Charlestonians say that those two rivers come together to form the Atlantic Ocean. Um, uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sounds like a biblical story, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Hey, what, what, one, one great quote you have, you're talking about um, – for years, your battle cry in the kitchen has been fresh, local, and traditional, and whether I'm frying shrimp in South Carolina, pounding pesto in Liguria or making spring rolls in asia so wh- what is this fresh local and, and traditional? we know what it is, but I want here have you keep talking about it because your your grit story is pretty great that's actually how we got to know you must have been fifteen or sixteen years ago I was making I, I called it polenta, but I started using your grits because also they were whole grain and I, I bought them out of a store, an old Ukrainian butcher shop in the East village. And then through that, I started ordering from you
3: direct. So oh, I forgot, I forgot he used to carry my stuff. Oh my! Oh
1: man, yeah. I, I was, I, I called it polenta, but I, I, it was shrimp and grits and, um uh, or I made a, I made a, Kind of upside down, some kind of shepherd's pie, but I use polenta. Well, I use your grits instead of mashed potatoes in a, in a shepherd <laughs> pie. That's how I got to know you. And you um, know, I, I grew up with I grew up with polenta and and real more stone ground corn as well. And uh, I, I'm interested in in the exact corn that you found. Is, is there a type of corn? Because now you know, John. Now you know it's huge. I mean, from Mexico, I know a guy imported blue corn special variety of of all local farm you know heirloom blue corn that he's made into beer and and so many other stories i know farmers in new hampshire who are growing heirloom uh red red corn for polenta
3: yeah it's it's been it's been fascinating this this whole uh, heirloom traditional um movement um it's it's been really interesting, you know. I lived in Italy for several years, and 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 I lived in northern Italy where they eat polenta. But the you know the the same thing. Uh, I lived there in the early '80s, and the same thing was true in Italy in the early '80s. That was true in the United States in the early '80s, and that is if you wanted to find traditional corns. Heirloom variety corns that were not ground to smithereens between steel rollers. You had to find a mill that was grinding them the right way uh, between stones, not between rollers, and using the right kind of grits. And of course, you know, this whole slow food movement started right near where I was living uh, in northern Italy. And um, and the same thing is true today, even, uh, that was true back then. If you want stone ground, whole grain corn products that are traditional, you've got to pretty much go to the farmer or to a mill who works with a farm farmer. Now, polenta is made from flint corn, which is much harder physically harder than the traditional dent corn of Appalachia, which is, uh, which is what I came to think of as uh, the traditional corn for grits and cornbread, um, possibly because both of my grandmothers were from Tennessee, and one of them was actually from the mountains. Um, um, she grew up outside Knoxville, and my father was raised in Knoxville. Um, and so when I went looking for grits and cornmeal, I was trying, I was looking for that flavor of my youth, um, not just the fact that they were whole grain, um, but it had, they had to taste right, um, as well. And I think these traditional tastes are very important. And and now, of course, it's taken off and there, there, there are people uh, like, uh, Glenn Roberts and David Shields in South Carolina, who are at the forefront of preserving traditional, not just grains, but fruits and vegetables as well, and and reviving some of these uh, heirloom or heritage breeds. And not just, and then there are people like Tank Jackson, who are reviving, who's a, a hog farmer, as you know, who's reviving heritage breeds halt. you know it's 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 very interesting to me that that um some of these things get taken a little bit too far in that <laughs> direction because i'll be in a restaurant and they'll say oh this is such and such corn you know hadn't been grown in 60 years it originated in this valley in iowa in the 1830s and i taste it and i go meh just because it's just because it's heirloom doesn't mean it necessarily tastes better. There are a lot of reasons why why things went went out of favor, you know, and not just productivity, you know, it's a proficiency in the field and uh, but but um I am thrilled to have been at the forefront of that. Um I don't know I've answered your question. I told you I'll go off on a tangent. So
1: No, you're John, you know, you're you're I, I love that y- you can talk because <laughs> you're a great company. Um, so, you know, back to some of the recipes in, in your memoir. And um, I, what's the name of your first book, the, the book 1992? that um, uh, The first
3: book was called Hop and John's Low Country Cooking. And, you know, it is it's really remarkable. I mean, this is a book about the food of Charleston and the, the coastal plain uh, surrounding Charleston. I actually didn't include Georgia in the book because their history even right next door is, is different. But um, And I stuck to what I knew. And it, But it's amazing. The book has been in print continuously for 30 years. Uh, don't ask me how. For a cookbook, it's pretty amazing. But um, there you have it.
1: Well, so, some of the old recipes. So you as a culinary historian, I mean, it's it's why I think that your memoir is very readable. Because you are a storyteller but there's a lot of great history and uh, let, let's talk about there's a myth you you, you 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 when you see some 20th century recipes w- what are ingredients that that you don't like that you want to take out um, and try to reconstruct a, a more historical recipe like let's one of the items is the, the Huguenot tort which is like an
3: apple and nut pie yeah it's a it's it, it's actually the uh, <laughs> the the Huguenot tart, as as it is presented for the first time in Charleston receipts, which is the Junior League's cookbook from 1950 in Charleston, which is uh, cont- has been continuously in print too and sold nearly a million copies. Um, uh, but the, it's Charleston's like most famous dessert, and they they serve it in the tea rooms that they have during the house tours in the fall and spring. And, but I never liked it. It's sort of this gooey mess. Um, it's apples and nuts, but it also has like five teaspoons of baking powder in it. And as soon as I looked at it, I went, this isn't a tour at all. Yeah. It's not French. I don't, there's nothing in it in the French canon that I know of that's vaguely like it. Anyway, I tracked down the, the the original author of it she was in a nursing home at the time and she said oh no and, you know I was at a fair in the in in Texas and they served it and they called it oats art pudding and I just you know they wanted to and I served it at this place called the Huguenot Tavern in downtown Charleston <laughs> and, and we put it in the and you know I, I messed around with it and added a bunch of baking powder and made it really easy but to me it just tastes like baking powder and goo. And so what I did was I took all the baking powder out and made a real French tort, um, and kept all the characteristics, this meringue-like top, and I, 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 I'm able to do that by putting a, a pan of water in the bottom of the oven. Um, so mine is a real apple and nut t- uh, tort with real French antecedents. but you know they still serve the other thing, <laughs> the, the gooey one, at the tea rooms, and people love it. and 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 Charlestonians are some Charlestonians are furious that still after thirty years they're furious that I dare debunk the history of their beloved tort. But you know it has very little to do with um. Huguenots—that's for sure. <laughs> All
1: right, no, another one. Which, which—I mean, I'm—I'm I'm just thinking of like what. What do I? I—I was thinking the other day. I was at a cider tasting, and I thought that, and I still—I believe it—that hard cider is on the verge of needing to do what wine did in the '70s and 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 get get more relations with chefs and really work on pairings with 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 the really good high quality. Ciders, kind of like when Robert Mondavi was was coming out and trying to build the name of California, California wines. So when I think of everything in your book, to me, is a potential pairing. Um, now, I know that you're not a big beer guy, but is there something that you would pair besides iced tea?
3: <laughs> well, I don't drink iced tea, but I do drink hard cider. I like cider a lot. And, you know, even here in Cambodia, this whole urban... Uh, this revival of these inner cities everywhere. It's not just, you know, in New York and Washington and Charleston and Miami and Los Angeles, uh, it's in Chicago. It's, it's everywhere. Um, there are hip restaurants and breweries all over Phnom Penh, uh, all over Bangkok. Um, we, we have fabulous French bistros here and Italian Uh, Trattoria, um, and lots of brew pubs. And there is some excellent cider being made here, which I find pretty funny because, of course, apples don't grow here. It's too hot. And like in Charleston, it's just too hot to grow apples. Um, But I've I've had some delicious ciders lately. Um, You know, there's not that many recipes in the book. I think they are 30. a lot of stories, but not that many recipes. But I think you're right. The um, the the ciders would would go very well with a lot of this food. You know, uh, uh, Jimmy. I'm, uh, I say I'm not a beer drinker, but frankly, I lived on beer and eggs in college. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in a in a in a peculiar household. Uh, both of my parents were scientists, and and when we moved to South Carolina. Uh, my father was head of research and development for a chemical company, and they bought a chemical plant in South Carolina. So we moved this tiny little town there. Um, but they were already, you know, enamored of wine. My mother was a quite a cook, and we were already used to buying fine wines at uh, Martin's Wine Cellar in New Orleans um, and at um, uh, Plano Pearson's in in Washington, D.C. And then we moved to South Carolina. My father was able to go to Charleston and get wine there and to a place called Asmers in Columbia, South Carolina. So there were places because Charleston is a port, of course. And so there were a lot of importers of French and Italian wines there then. So I grew up with wine, not with beer. And um, so after college, when I could finally afford the wines that I'd grown up with, I sort of abandoned beer and started drinking wine. (laughs) So, but, you know, I I just, uh, I I do love these ciders. Uh, I I really do love them there. And I think it's a movement everywhere. It's not just, you know, up in New England. It's, It's happening here. I don't know where they get apples from. I guess they get them from from Australia and New Zealand, or China. China grows a lot of apples.
1: Yeah, no, it's it, it's pretty neat the phenomenon of, of of all the craft beverages, you know, going on. Well, I'm going to read off. We're going to talk about a couple of, of the recipes from your from your memoir, and then I'm going to tell you what I might pair with them as well. So first, it jumped out after the apple tart, the the ats jar pickles. You know, when I think about a pub menu, especially a, a cider or beer pairing. I think this this mustardy pickle um just sounds really good. So tell us that story because you mentioned um some West African and, and Malaysian influence and uh wh- where does the ats jar
3: pickles come from cuz that's not a white boy thing. Well, when I when I first started doing culinary research back in the 80s um there were very 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 few books uh about culinary history. But this man who's long deceased and he was deceased then, um, uh, Richard Hooker, he was a history professor, had had annotated a historic plantation cookbook from Charleston. I mean from near Charleston from um the eighteenth century. And in it he said he couldn't figure out what this jar pickle was. But Ashtar and it's it's the Achar, which is both a generic term for um, both oil pickles and brine pickles throughout Southern Asia. And I was able to trace the recipe from going backwards um, and finding it in the Caribbean where in many of the enslaved who had come to South Carolina had been before they came to South Carolina, to West Africa, down to South Africa, where there had been, uh, where the Dutch had Malaysian slaves, and then uh, to India, and then all the way around to Java, where um, the recipe and word originated. Here in Southeast Asia, it's been fascinating to me because with this great um, movement towards pickling and fermented food, uh, it's amazing here because everything here is pickled or fermented, everything. And they have so many fruits. Jimmy, you wouldn't believe the fruits here. There, There are literally hundreds of fruits I've never heard of before. And you see vendors on the side of the road with these little carts and they have all of these fruits cut up and they are either brined or they are uh, pickled in a, in a a vinegar. I say vinegar solution, but it's usually lime juice. Um, If the fruits are fresh and cut up, they um, put them down in a a little mix that is salt and sugar and hot pepper. Um, But, These pickles accompany every kind of dish. The same way uh, piccolili and chutneys and raitas accompany dishes in India. And to me, these pickles, like Astar pickle or piccolili or chow chow, or chutneys, they're the real hallmark of southern foods to me. Um, you know, anywhere in the United States, you might have, say, a pork chop and some rice and some beans of some kind, uh, uh, shelling beans and butter beans or llama beans or, or black eyed peas. Um, but in the Low Country and in pretty much all over the South, because what happened is these foods from Charleston then moved to inland as people left the ports and and spread throughout the Southern diaspora. In Charleston, those butter beans would be on top of the rice and then on top of that would be a big dollop of piccalilli. And in fact, that's what um, we had for dinner last night. I roasted a chicken and I had butter beans and rice and piccalilli and okra and uh, mustard greens. And the mustard greens also had a, a different relish with them, which was made with hot peppers and vinegar.
1: John, when when you describe your dish, I'm smiling, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm getting hungry. This, this is, is what I want to eat. I want to eat this kind of food for
3: Thanksgiving. I'll you know, you. it's funny. After I took the um, I took the chicken. I was roasting the chicken really hot, and I took the chicken out of the oven and put a bunch of uh, baby carrots in there. Um, and, and we were halfway through the meal, and I said, "Oh my God, I forgot the carrots." <laughs> but we ate them. So, <laughs> you know, you were We should uh, maybe move on to Thanksgiving. Um,
1: <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. You know, you think about oh, it's, its flavors. So, you know, let's say we're we're making a little wine bar or a, a, a brew pub menu. You know these days i'd say starting with an ats jar pickles or a chutney like you said really could be the foundation of of the entire program you know and one thing i like about wine bars and beer bars and brew pubs you don't you can have a simple menu um that, that that's just a nice starting point and uh I just want our listeners to know that, that your book is
3: really inspiring. <laughs> you, know, you know, Jimmy, when I was growing up, the restaurants in Charleston, I mean, we would go to Charleston. We live 70 miles inland, but we would go to Charleston to shop and for my parents to go to the wine store. And, um, but we would go to the restaurants in Charleston. And as a matter of course, um, there would be at Star Pickles on the table I mean, when Heck and, and the South Carolina Department of whatever they call it, agriculture, whatever, uh, in the '70s started, you know, and '80s started um, cracking down on these things and not allowing you to put these things out on the table like that. But there so was a health, health,
1: health inspectors. That's what we call them. health inspectors. <laughs> yeah,
3: there would be both relish, what we called relish, which would be crudité, you know, carrots and celery sticks. And radishes, and then there would be a jar of these pickles. And these pickles, uh, these pickles, Jimmy, they're they're Italian jardiniere. That's what they are. I mean, it's the same thing. It's just got mustard wow. in it. It's the same thing. You think of a jar of jardiniere. It's the same thing. Pickle, just pickled vegetables, all sorts. Right? You got string right. beans.
1: You got cauliflower.
3: Maybe. Yeah, cauliflower, peppers, whatever. But it, it and I like turnips in it too. But it's funny as for as for serving it before a meal, it, you're right to have, want to have the beer and hard cider, or for me a glass of champagne with it, because you know those those acids will really mess up um, <laughs> mess up your wines. <laughs> so you know you sure. don't want that- to. <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to eat an as jar pickle and then have have a glass of Bordeaux or Burgundy.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. So an- another one that just seems like it's easy to pair with almost anything is your th- the sweet potato pie.
3: You know, I love that pie. I will never understand why these custardy pies are more popular. I'm. I don't. I don't have a a strong sweet tooth, but I also don't have a a great Affinity for dairy products um believe it or not I mean I love whipped cream and I love butter but I just I've never been a, a i don't know creamy things custardy things but this pie is old fashioned it's it was more popular back in the day um i I traced the recipe in the book <clears throat> through many generations but it's just it's you slightly poach off your sweet potatoes, and you fill your your pie crust with these cut up piece, pieces of of sweet potato, and it's just in a very little sugar, a little bit of butter. It, it's just very little spice. Um, yeah, don't get me going towards pumpkin spice. Lord. So it's,
1: it's like a it's almost like a twice baked sweet potato
3: yes something Farms like that. Of crust and it's so, so- it, it it
1: really could go with everything so that you could yeah. have that it it's it's balances out everything so i want to put in my pairing would be um, this year a lot of the really good small breweries that i know especially in the northeast are are doing um, some kind of a dark lager or a, a martson amber so i would say any of those i know down in charleston edmonds does it um and I would say that Good Word Brewing in Georgia, I know, is doing some kind of amber lager. Um, but that's what I would drink it with. Um, OEC's got, got got something, and uh, so that's for our listeners. Get drink your amber lager, Meritzen lager, black lagers, Czech black lagers with with your your Thanksgiving dinner or a nice dry cider. But um, I I just love that. I, I love this this I because you think of any kind of pie. You know, like for example, my wife. Doesn't really like when you say pie, she doesn't like it. But I think it's a lot because things are so adulterated with um, so many other things. But she'll make a spinach pie, which is closer to like something from Genoa where it's mostly spinach and then just scraps of cheese and a little egg, uh, maybe some nuts. And the same thing when I, when I think about your sweet potato pie, um, how far back does that go? Because it, it, so there's a crust, it might be a large crust. And it, it it's mostly the sweet potatoes. Um, did, are, when you're doing your re- research,
3: does it, do these go back to colonial era? Uh, yes, yes. It, it goes back then. And uh, it was very, very popular throughout the 19th century. Um, we've got uh, a dozen different recipes in the 19th century. And, you know, I, another thing for me, especially after a big meal like Thanksgiving, I mean, everybody's comatose from eating so much anyway. I always like to wait like a couple of hours. (laughs) And then I have a slice of my pie with a shot of bourbon. That sounds good. (laughs) Yeah, it goes with it very well, too. You know, Thanksgiving's a funny meal, Jimmy. um, I've, I've never been a huge fan of it as a cook, um i'm fond of saying that that thanksgiving must have been invented by a man who the same man perhaps who invented um pantyhose because he never had to deal with either of them uh, because, <laughs> because the thanksgiving meal everything goes in the oven at the same time hence you invite your neighbors over so that you can use their oven as well and about i don't know about 35 years ago I started deep frying the turkey and that Freed up the oven. Um, but we were at my in laws one year, and the women and I had been cooking for days, <laughs> literally days, you know, that bringing casseroles out of the freezer and popping them in the oven. My mother in law had two ovens. Her sister lived in town. She brought stuff from her oven. And then, of course, you've got these rolls you want to put in at the last minute and you've got the dressing to do and and the turkey fortunately i'm frying it and we've been cooking for days and we all sit down and it's 20 minutes over it's over there was there were 16 to 20 of us and everybody goes and plops down in front of the tv to watch the game and there i am back in the kitchen with the women Hand-washing hand <laughs> hand the good china, hand-washing the good silver, hand-washing the crystal, and I blew up, and I went in there and I said, y'all, this isn't fair. This is like so not right. We've been working for three days. And 20 minutes, and y'all come down. And and one of my brother-in-laws just said, John, you're out of line. This is our tradition, too. And I said, you know what? From now on, we're going to go to the country club because at the country club, they have great food. They have a great wine list, and there's something for everybody. There's not only turkey. There's roast beef. There's ham. There's city ham, and there's country ham. There's barbecue. There's a huge... A, a seafood bar with everything you could possibly want, you know tons of oysters and shrimp and clams and crab and and there are thirty desserts and so from that was uh, about twenty five years ago, I'd say, and so from then on we've eaten out at thanksgiving
1: (laughs) well john i think that i'm going to be taking my wife out for thanksgiving this year (laughs) since we're talking but let's go with a couple more dishes first we're going to take a short break we'll be back in a few minutes on beer sessions radio all right.
2: this episode is brought to you by roberta's home of heritage radio network for 10 years roberta's was founded in bushwick in 2008 Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Support us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. It's like our 13th or 14th year nonprofit and every kind of show from farms to cocktails, beer, and uh, cookbooks. And we've got Mr. uh, John Martin Taylor here talking about his new book from Charleston to Phnom Penh. So John, um, we were talking about Thanksgiving enough of that. And thank you. Yes. I'm going to take my wife out for Thanksgiving, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. but now another item from your, your menu uh, in the book, boiled peanuts, what are they? And how important are they to be fresh? And what's the real, like where are they really grown? Well, because it's kind of thing that i think we're talking a little bit about some hyper local food hyper regional food which is what i love you know when you talked about when you when you found the the farmers growing the heirloom corn on the mountain in georgia um and and you started shipping that as your hop and johns grits years ago what how do you get good peanuts and are they green
3: i can't i just can't picture boiled peanuts well boiled peanut boiled peanuts are probably the most hyper local food in the south um it, it it's It's a funny thing uh you know there are fifteen thousand peanut farmers in South Georgia, and so you find boiled peanuts there um South Carolina I, uh, the first written recipes we have or mentions of them are in in the midlands of South Carolina where they grow a lot of peanuts oddly enough uh Virginia is is a huge peanut um grower but they don't boil peanuts there uh and nor do they in North Carolina and nor do they out west where they also uh, uh, grow peanuts. The The real secret to boiled peanuts is using freshly dug peanuts, what we call green peanuts. Um, they have a flavor that is unlike anything else. You know, peanuts are a legume. They're not a nut. And as, as Kathy Purvis uh, who was the food editor of the Charlotte Observer for years and years and years she freelances now as as she says in the article I quote her she said you know she said it's a legume and you wouldn't you wouldn't not think of boiling any other legume and so it's logical um you know they're they're most like Uh, Edamame, boiled soybeans—that's what they taste most like. And so, the popularity of edamame has actually helped popularize boiled peanuts. But similar
1: similar texture, John. Um, Similar
3: texture and taste. I have a, a Japanese friend who lives in New York, and in oh the late '80s, she came to visit me in Charleston, and I served her boiled peanuts. And she said, "Oh, these are just like edamame." And she says, "And that's in a, and we and we take them in to the baseball games, and that's where we eat them." And I said, "Well, that's where <laughs> a lot of people in South Carolina and Georgia—that's um, where a lot of people eat them too." I mean, you think of parched peanuts at the baseball game, but in South Carolina and pockets of Georgia, um, it would be boiled peanuts. I mean, I think most people. Uh, buy boiled peanuts from the side of the road um, where people have these big, huge, you know, uh, cast iron cauldrons of them boiling and and they put them in a paper bag and then you eat them and throw the shells out, um, out the window of your car. they're biodegradable after all <laughs>
1: you know, so. well
3: i i think you're onto on something because you you know if I,
1: if i'm drinking' i'm, I'm at a I'm at a pub or I'm at a baseball game I like peanuts, but the the roasted peanuts it's i can see having a fresh something like an edamame um with a little salt on it um with with a beer um it, I feel like it's it's probably gonna go down easier
3: than just just dry peanuts. They uh, they're um, they're amazing and I like them I like them boiled and, and really soft so that you can all but eat the shell. Um, there's um, I'm grabbing my first book that happens to be sitting by my desk and I want to see if there's something in there I said that was um, better than what I can think of but there's so here, here we go. Three pounds seems like a lot of peanuts, but it will feed two boiled peanut lovers through about two beers. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That sounds sounds about right. Uh, Yeah. You just define it for me. Like edamame, I get it. Um, Everybody likes edamame and you you can, you can definitely suck them down. Your first book was Hobbin John's low country um and i have it i'm trying to find it 1992 um so you you but in this book you've got beyond that too we don't have that much more time but i just i really wanted the listeners to to get to know you because you know we met because you, you know a lot of the shows i've done the last couple of years we've talked about regional grains and and small grains um craft malts and you you were on it a long time ago uh Rediscovering the stone ground grits. Um, there's a there's I, there is a chef I met. And we Heritage Radio Network has, has been going down to uh, Charleston Wine and Food the the last few years. I think at least since 2017. And there's one chef, Robert Staling, who uh, was really a a, a big supporter. Um, when did he come on the scene in in Charleston? And and do you know him well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know.
3: And when I first met him, he went by the name of Butch. He's a, he's a, he's a great (laughs) guy. He, he came to Charleston. I, you know, I don't know exactly. I want to say he opened right after the hurricane. Um, um, I, I don't know, but he just, he was in business for many years, but he, had worked with Bill Neal in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and so he was you know an acolyte of bills, so he was already on to the let's revive traditional southern foods um, and and yeah, he's a great guy, and he and his wife both his wife worked as um she was a, a publicity person for the Spoleto festival the the huge international arts festival that's held in charleston each spring but no he's a great guy wow
1: well then you know and just just back to how you define i mean i know it's 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 low country to you do you ever use the word southern
3: because it seems like there's so many different regions and traditions yes i use the word southern i use the word southern all the time but as i said in my in my second book uh you know the south is more emotion than nation I mean, it's if people think they're from the south even if they just moved here from from new york if they think they're from the south they're from the south i mean i most people think of the south as as the states of the confederacy but i know people in Uh, Oklahoma and West Virginia, who would be insulted if you called them anything other than Southern. Um, And it's huge. I mean, from from Jacksonville, Florida to to Memphis, Tennessee is a long ways. It's you know, it's it's over a thousand miles and you've got you've got everything but desert (laughs) in between. Um, And so much of the South, of course, has a coastline. And so seafood is predominant but when you're up in Appalachia you know the the cooking of Appalachia is very different from the cooking of Charleston and the cooking of, of Eastern Texas where a lot of Germans settled it's very different look at the barbecue in in Eastern Texas that's beef as opposed to the the barbecue in Memphis which is straight up the river um, It's a huge, huge area. So I do talk about the South, um, but I talk about it with a lot of qualifiers because there are a lot of Souths.
1: John, back to culinary history and drinking history. So like colonial era Charleston, I I know you mentioned that that George Washington had visited. Um, What what were they drinking and where were they drinking in in that era? They
3: were were drinking everywhere. They were drinking everywhere. the The figures uh, from the colonial period is astounding. You have to understand that you know there, 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 wasn't a public sewage system, and there, and there weren't dentists, and there weren't, you know, it was a different time. The when, um, when the Junior League published. Charleston Receipts, the book, the aforementioned book that has the Huguenot tort recipe in it in 1950. The first chapter is, um, it's it's all drinks. And it's, and many of the drinks are for, to make punches for hundreds of people. (laughs) It's, um, it's amazing. If you go back and look at the amount of, of booze that people were drinking. It's astounding. You wonder, I don't know, you wonder how they, how they lived. They, um, because they were consuming so much alcohol. It's, it's crazy, but they were drinking Madeira and they were drinking ales. There were a lot of, uh, brew pubs in, in colonial Charleston. Actually where my store was had been a a brewery um in the eighteenth century. And when I dug up what had been a driveway to put in a courtyard, I found dozens and dozens and dozens of 18th century beer bottles. Um broken of course, but but they were there. Um and they drink port and they drink claret, you know, which is a generic term <laughs> for red wine in the Bordeaux style. Um, but from my first book, um, uh, from Low Country Cooking, I, I, I can read you the introduction of the um, beverage chapter. Charleston's history of, it, of imbibing is legend. Um, Robert Rosen's short history of Charleston includes a half dozen entries about the city's drinking habits, um, and uh, Walt Fraser's Charleston. Charleston's a social history of the city pr- that portrays a hedonistic upper class and a debauched citizenry. Rosen quotes the historian Charles Beanball. Quote. The importation of liquors at Charlestown in 1743 staggers the imagination. 1,500 dozen empty bottles, among other items, to be used for a six-month supply of 1,219 hogsheads, 188 tierces, and 58 barrels of rum. And that's when there were about 2,000 people living there. So, (laughs) well... (laughs) <laughs>
1: we we got our beer in and in our, our our drinking history too. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know Johnny, we 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 I, I, we're going to cross paths again. I know you, you've been uh, you've been out of the country a lot. You know you you've been in Cambodia. You're probably on your way to what's next, uh, Vietnam? Vietnam,
3: yeah, we're moving to Vietnam in in February. That should be what, interesting. What, what, Do you celebrate Thanksgiving when when you're overseas? As a matter of fact, um, this year, usually we go out, but this year, um, after two and a half years of not having Peace Corps volunteers, my husband is the director of Peace Corps here in Cambodia, we have a new crop of volunteers. And they are out at their, they just arrived a few weeks ago, and they're out at a training center in Takao province. And we have a, an American chef here who's been here for 20 years, and he's he got a restaurant, and he is um, making turkeys and dressing and gravy, and we're putting it all in, in a catering truck and going out to the province, and, and we're going to have traditional Thanksgiving with um, with the volunteers.
1: All right. Well, John, it's so great talking to you. Um, please go check out his new book from Charleston to it's Phnom Penh. Is that how you
3: pronounce it? Yeah. Phnom Penh.
1: Charleston Phnom Penh and a uh, wonderful writer, colonial historian, John Martin Taylor. Um, that's the book I'm, I'm giving to friends for Christmas and the recipes are inspiring me for, for Thanksgiving. So John, thank you so much for joining me here on heritage radio network.
3: It's great talking to you again.
1: Oh man, this is re- real special. We've been talking for over a year about getting you on it in your 12-hour time difference. Thank you. Big shout-out to our engineer, Armin Spengen, who's going to clean this up and make it sound beautiful, uh, although John's voice already is beautiful. So I'm Jimmy Carbone. Thanks, guys. We'll catch you next time. Happy Thanksgiving. This is our Thanksgiving show. Thanks, John. See you, buddy. Bye-bye. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you,